0: Today, on the Daily Scoop Podcast from the Scoop News Group, small business pressure from the very top of the executive branch, cyber tensions grow in the defense industrial base, and good news and bad news on tech troubles at the Office of Personnel Management. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop Podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Senior staff at the Department of Veterans Affairs gave the agency's inspector general's office inaccurate information about the department's electronic health records system. The IG office says VA personnel delayed sending data sets and other information the office needed for its investigation, too. The new IG report says agency leaders didn't mislead investigators on purpose, but the delays and inaccurate information impeded oversight efforts. The Federal Bureau of Investigation will spend $400 million on network modernization through the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. The award covers data and voice transmission and connectivity for its law enforcement and intelligence missions. Verizon will do the work for the FBI. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The White House is pushing agencies on its small business contracting goals as quarter four begins for fiscal 2022. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer at IntelliBridge. He's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see as the administration is pushing these agencies toward their goals and and also trying to hit? I mean, there's a lot of money that's going to go out the door in the next 90 or so days. Welcome.
1: That's true. Thank, thanks. for having me again, Francis. Always good to be with you. Yeah, a lot of lot of money obviously going to go out the door in Q four. Good time to be a small business, right? Given the increased emphasis that the administration is putting on uh, on dollars flowing to small businesses as a way to sort of um, you know support the the equity uh, uh, initiatives that they have. You know, I think the things I'm looking at are I'm thinking a little bit about risk in this kind of environment, right? And I say that because you know some of the premier Contract vehicles that agencies might want to use, like um, you know, like Polaris, right? The follow kind of follow-on to Alliance Two, or like CIOSP Four, haven't yet been awarded, and so you've got some, you've got a, you know, I think a more limited market from a contract vehicle perspective for small businesses, and you know that that there could be some risk there for agencies if they look to award some bigger, more complex programs to uh, to smalls, right? It's a more limited pool for competition. And some of the smalls that are left on those vehicles, like COSP3, for example, you know, are, aren't necessarily the ones that have been the most successful and may not be the most sophisticated primes you have out there. So from an agency perspective, right, if you're going to give a a business who's a, so maybe has a run rate of $15 million a year, if you're going to award a 20 or $25 million a year technical contract to that business, it could be, there could be some execution risk there, right? Uh, so that that's, that's sort of, it's interesting, right? There's a, there's a, a demand, right, to drive more dollars to small businesses, but a little bit of a lack of supply in terms of those top tier vehicles, where you've got where you've got the qualified smalls to award to.
0: And the challenge is that's not going to change in the next three months. By by the end of the fiscal year, that there's not nearly enough timeline left to be able to change that, right?
1: There's not. Yeah, no, no, there's not. Right. I mean, the you know, I know GSA is working on Polaris, right? And there's a sort of August deadline for some things, and you know, I think I think NITAC is. It's, you know, what I've heard is maybe late fall kind of November-ish timeframe for award of CIOSP 4 you know, okay, great. But that, yeah, as you said, that that doesn't solve the problem here in
0: Q4. As we plan for the end, as agencies plan for the end of the fiscal year, what steps to take to mitigate that risk, Alan? Or is it just not possible because of that supply shortfall that you described?
1: Well, I think if you've already committed to your acquisition strategy, where you are going to award to a small as prime. uh that's, that's tough, right? I mean, look, you could go, you could, you could use a vehicle maybe that has a little wider pool, like a, like a, um, like a GSA schedule, right? Depending on, depending on what, you know, what sort of contract type you're looking at, you get, you get a wider pool there, you get, you know, you get, you get potentially some more competition, and maybe there's a little bit of risk mitigation there. If you haven't decided on your acquisition strategy yet, it's a little late, but if you haven't, you know, may, maybe there are some of those larger, more complex programs, maybe, you just have really aggressive subcontracting goals, right? And you, you award, you know, you award to a large kind of, you competed unrestricted, but you have aggressive subcontracting goals right? as a way to make sure that the dollars and the opportunity flow to, to small businesses. So that's that's a a couple of potential ways you can mitigate that.
0: Is the risk though, then just shifted to the, to the large prime to know that they are going to bring the smalls in that are able to do it because I mean, it just strikes me that you might you might just be moving it from one bucket to another bucket,
1: you, it, potentially, right? But look, the the large primes, right? And and uh, I mean, everybody likes to take a shot at the at the large primes, but some things they do pretty well, right? And 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 one thing they do pretty well is they you know they they create and manage teams pretty well, right? And they know how to control risk on those teams and generally deliver uh, on you know on pretty large uh, and complex technical programs. And so I think. You know, in my mind, it's a lot less risky to award to a large and have an aggressive subcontracting plan versus award to a small right who might not have been tested or ever run a program that's anywhere near that big or complex and have a bunch of larges as as uh, subcontractors on that small's team right and then then you know then you get this sometimes awkward dance in the agencies where like well who's really calling the shots here right you know if if a if a small business is backed by you know a a large and really a lot of the technical expertise is coming from the large you know it, it just it creates it can cause create this awkward dance right where you've got the prime but the prime doesn't really have the technical expertise and who's the customer go to and you know privity of contract and all, all these all these things so it's, it's a perhaps a bit of the nitty-gritty for your audience but like it's that's real life right in terms of how these things go down
0: yeah no that's exactly the the crux of the matter is <laughs> and and i hadn't thought of it that way as far as who's running the show but that's really what it boils down to for the agency when they're in that situation so that makes a lot of sense it strikes me me that if 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 it's kind of too late for this fiscal year which it sounds like it is to to build this cohort of small businesses then I guess we get back to the same conversation that you and I have had in the past and we've I've had with other people on this program in the past which is what should we be doing now to try to build that base so that next year say when we get to July of 2023 we're not having the same conversation again about where do we find the small businesses to bring them in. And that's twofold, I guess it's uh, building and solidifying the vehicles themselves and it's building and solidifying the base of service providers. Right.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're right on both those things, you know, a a potentially a third thing, kind of a policy remedy to think about, right. And this is, you know, got to get SBA involved and get, get the cars involved. Right. But, but is to potentially raise the, um, the the threshold, right, the kind of dollar threshold or employee threshold for what we define as small businesses. You know, the federal market is kind of funny, right, is that, you know, hey, you're in the uh, you're an IT business and you're, you know, you're trailing five years revenue average is greater than $30 million. Okay, all of a sudden you're in the same class as Booz Allen or Accenture, right? And you're like, well, there's a, you know, there's a pretty big gap there, right, between, hey, I'm a $40 million a year business and, you know, and, and and a, you know one of the one of the really really large you know multi billion dollar publicly traded businesses right like there's and i'm not necess- i'm not advocating for kind of the the sort of mid tier classification because i think that's squishy, but i just you know maybe 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 30 million dollars isn't the right you know is, isn't the right breakpoint for smalls right maybe it's 50 or 100 or some, some something like that
0: well it's funny that you say that because i got a press release the other day from a pr person that was talking about uh, how the company they were representing just got a fifteen million dollar contract, and I thought, you know, that maybe this person's new to the government contracting space. And I mean, no disrespect to companies that get fifteen million dollar contracts; it's I, I'm happy for them. But like, I'm not sure at at one of those bigger companies that you just described, they wouldn't even bother. It that that's that's like me saying, Alan, can you lend me forty bucks? Because in in the sphere of the government contracting space. And applied to the lens that you just uh, that you just put out there, that makes it make sense. If if maybe it's time to revisit what the definition of a small is and and how that that company qualifies for work. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I, I yeah, I would agree. Yeah, at a big at a big company, right? Hey, a ten or fifty million dollar contract. I mean, it's nice. Everything counts, but yeah, it's a little. The old joke is it's change change in the couch cushions. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that that you found. Yeah, and I think that, as I said sort of in my opening comments, right, that the potential risk is when you've got a more limited pool of smalls on some of these vehicles that are long in the tooth, you know, you could you you could you could a little bit overwhelm uh, a small business, right? If you're a 15 or $20 million company and you win a contract that doubles or more the size of your business, that's just a lot to handle from a management perspective, right? And the agency, you know, hey, the agency's got a mission to do. They award the contract. They want the work done. Right, they want the system built. They want to get the mission done, um, and and uh, you know they're kind of relying on the contractor to sort of do all to be able to effectively manage a program. And sometimes that's just that's that's can be can be a challenge, right? For um for for a small, right? Particularly some smalls, you know, hey, some of those vehicles, right, where you had eighty or hundred smalls, and there were lots of companies that were successful, and they've gotten too large to qualify if the if the agency asked for a recertification at the task order level. The small businesses that are left, right? I mean, the truth of it is, the industry looks at them and says, "Well, why weren't you successful, right? Like you're sort of the last, you know, you're one of the last people to dance without a partner, right?" It's like, "Well, well, why is that, right? Did you know? Did you spill ketchup on your suit, or you, you can't <laughs> dance, or like, what's you know, what's the story, right?"
0: Um, reg- <laughs> okay, I'm trying. I'm trying to get that visual out of my head of the ketchup <laughs> on the suit. Um, going to the vehicles, Alan. Laura Stanton your former colleague was on the program not too long ago and and god bless her she's got like six or eight big things going at uh, at the present time what what do we do strategically what do we do calendar wise to prevent that from happening at some point point? and I know that each of them has had their own peculiar thing and and caused them to push this and push that and this moves to the left and so on but I mean, that seems to be part of that supply problem that you're talking about, is we have so many, and it's not just the GSA. You mentioned NITAC, and uh, you know, over here to the side, NASA soup just seems to keep chugging along, but it looks like everywhere else, there's uh, some challenge or other, and, and that's the other side of this equation that we have to address, it seems. Agreed.
1: Yeah, I think I think a couple things there. So you your people are starting earlier, right? They're realizing that you've got to start early. I noticed I you know I listened to the uh, to your talk with Laura. and I noticed she talked about line three already, right? which is like, hey, you know super early. If you look over on the the follow on to Oasis, right? they've started that conversation very early, right? So that you you know the earlier you start, the less chance there is for a gap. What's the other thing that's done, you, you saw this done on Stars three, um, is they you know they awarded in these cohorts right and that I think that I know one one benefit of that is it it, it helps reduce protest risk significantly and you know the the um, uh, the alliance too small right you know there's a protest issue there ultimately they couldn't resolve right which is why we're sort of getting the redo with you know with with Polaris so I think there's some different starting earlier and employing some different strategies that help reduce the risk of protest. Uh, from, from an industry perspective are, are, you know, are the kind of things that the contracting folks are doing to make sure we don't, we, we don't have these, we don't have these gaps.
0: Starting early didn't work for EIS though. <laughs> yeah. A little, well, true. A little, 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 little bit different animal. You know, there, that's not GSA's yeah. fault. I, and, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's that somebody did something wrong. I mean, that, that, from my view as an outsider is entirely driven by the agencies just not cooperate and i know it's a different kind of vehicle and so yeah. on i know i get all of that but yeah the strategic yeah. piece of it the timeline piece of it um doesn't seem to me to be that different and 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 i mean you're just seeing this your former organization having to drag these agencies kicking and screaming to get them to cooperate
1: on EIS, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the difference between, you know, a Polaris, right, is, hey, that's that's largely a GSA action, right? You go out, you talk to your customers, you talk yeah. to the industry, and then you've kind of got the action, right? It's mostly in your control. EIS, yeah, different ballgame, right? Hey, you can put, you can sort of set the table and put all the food out, right? But then you've got to get 50 some odd agencies all to, you know, all to the table and eat at the appropriate time. That That is a is a much bigger challenge, right? And as you saw, you know, hey, some agencies are on it, right? And the, and and other agencies, you got to sort of, you got to sort of drag in. There's a, there's a, yeah, yeah. EIS is a, in in many ways a more complex undertaking because you're coordinating not just with your own agency, but with you know, with a good chunk of the, of the government.
0: Alan Thomas, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all those contract vehicles in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Wednesday's show, The Best Places to Work in the Federal Government, a deep dive on the new numbers and what they mean. That's on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast, fedscoop.com, and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Department's committed to its Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, but the Defense Industrial Base still has questions about how that will work in practice. David Berto,es President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. He's former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Material Readiness. David, welcome. It's good to see you again. I, a little birdie told me, That recently at an event uh, with the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, you asked about when that might start showing up in contracts, CMMC language. Not really a lot of clarity about that. What do you know, either from them or from somebody else, about when the rubber meets the road for vendors, given that there are still so many questions about CMMC? Welcome, David.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Francis. And as always, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. And you always talk about stuff that is easy to ask and a little tricky <laughs> to answer. So, um so the current situation is ambiguous. Uh, you know, the there's a, a defense federal acquisition regulation clause, a DFARS clause that was issued back 2 years ago now, um that is in suspension and it, it's not being put into contracts uh, and it's not being enforced in the contracts it's in. Uh, but there's nothing yet to replace it, right? And so uh DoD took a better part of a year to say, we're not going to do what was being done by the previous administration. Uh, we're going to put 2.0 out. There's some language that gives you the broad shape of what 2.0 is going to do. Less expensive, more equitable, um, presumably at least as protective against the threats, although that's not one of their stated goals. It's an implicit goal there. But the here's the reality is that companies already have to respond to the threat regardless of what their requirements are. There is a contract requirement in place, and that is a plan to comply with the NIST standard, 800-171 is is its technical reference name, and with a self-assessment that's built into that. And so it's required that you do the self-assessment, that you report the results to DOD. That's assuming it's in your contract, but it's in most contracts now. Um, What's not clear is enforcement, how this plays into source selection and evaluation, how it plays into performance, and perhaps most importantly, how well it's doing to protect against the threat. So let me expand just on that last point and then I'll open up wherever you want to go. Um, All along, one of the big problems with the cybersecurity requirements, whether it was the original uh, FAR clause and DFARS clause from back during the Obama administration, whether it was CMMC 1.0 from the Trump administration or whether it's today's requirements, are way too slow in both developing the standard. It takes a long time for the government to issue a standard. NIST is not the fastest agency on the planet, as you might imagine. And they got to get it right. And it takes a long time to implement it then and get it into contracts and get the, the work done that does the protection. Meanwhile, the threat is evolving minute to minute, day to day, week to week, month to month. So I've always had a concern about how do you reconcile the slowness of the certification and administrative processes with the speed of the threat evolution. Uh, and so we can go anywhere you want.
0: Well, I'm hearing, so here's the buzz that I keep hearing, and I hear this at uh, both on the vendor side and on the government side. And the, the crux of it is, what's wrong with FedRAMP? What's wrong with applying the FedRAMP principles To what the defense department requires and why are we creating this whole thing in the first place and now we're talking about reciprocity as a possibility in the cmmc if you already have that then you are on the road to compliance well if that's what it's going to turn out to be and I, i i don't nothing nothing against what's going on at cmmc matthew travis was on the program not too long ago and i think they have terrific goals but if we already kind of have a thing that people seem to be thinking, at least bubbling under the surface, it's it's would be sufficient. Then why not just do that? I wonder.
2: So I think there's two aspects to that that come to mind immediately. One, of course, is FedRAMP has a huge velocity problem; it takes a long time to get your certification. And oftentimes it's useful only for specific applications and purposes. It doesn't, it already doesn't expand elsewhere. The second, of course, is that it doesn't cover a whole lot of the work being done here. You don't need to be FedRAMP certified to do much things. And the third is it really doesn't extend down into the sub tiers of of subcontractors, right? So the, the second thing though, is it's also not very elastic. It doesn't respond very well to changes. It's a set of fairly static standards. It, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't, there shouldn't be some reciprocity. It's probably not sufficient, but it's certainly uh, useful uh, to do that. I think the other piece that comes into play is that for DOD, the requirements that would apply only for DOD contracts could potentially put both prime contractors and subcontractors at a competitive disadvantage when competing with civilian agency contracts that don't have the same requirement. If you have stricter requirements, you will incur more costs. Those costs will affect both your direct charges and your indirect charges. That will make you potentially less competitive with civilian agencies that don't have such requirements, which then raises the question, what should the civilian agency requirements be? Right. Which is, you know, find me somebody who can answer that question today. I've been looking and I haven't seen it.
0: Yeah, I don't have the answer to that either, David. You used a phrase earlier, though, that really gets at the crux of what the the challenge here is and what, what we're trying to solve. And that is, how well it, the solution, meets the threat. That's the bottom line. Nobody cares. Well, that's not true. Um, the point of the exercise is not compliance. The point of the exercise is defending against the threat landscape. And I wonder if sometimes maybe we haven't gotten too far afield from that and, and focus too much on the mechanism rather than the actual solution we're trying to reach.
2: Right, I think that's probably true. And you know, the risks are not only in the cyber threat itself, It's in things like the provenance of the software that you install, the data system connectivity of the telecommunication systems that you install, right? We went through this whole Section 889 ban on Huawei and ZTE and other equipment, had a couple of problems, right? The ban was on any affiliate or subsidiary of Huawei. You go to the Commerce Department or the Defense Department or the intelligence community and say, can you give me a list of the affiliates and subsidiaries that I'm supposed to avoid? Uh, No, we don't have one right? Um, You'll have to ask Huawei that. Well, they're not likely to give you their hidden (laughs) affiliates and subsidiaries. Disclosure
0: is not their strong suit.
2: No, no, no. Transparency is not their game. And and, and then the next question is, if not them, then who's okay? Well, if you leave the burden of that, and this would be true for cybersecurity compliance, it would be true for software provenance, it would be for telecommunications and data systems. If you leave it up to the individual company to figure out what's okay, then you're multiplying your risks. So all of this is how do you stay ahead of the threat?
0: All right, um, how are we doing then in any, and, and I'm, we're not picking on a particular mechanism. I'm, I'm thinking more existentially. How are we doing at preparing the landscape for doing that? Because it's, it's, it feels to me like we're doing a whole lot of action and not necessarily making a lot of progress.
2: Well, most of the companies, certainly the members of PSC um, have done an awful lot in terms of compliance, not only with the NIST standards, but going well beyond the NIST standards, the thing that aren't even incorporated into the standards today, technology and, and, uh, and applications that provide protection. Um, the biggest focus to date from DOD has been on protecting technical data of major weapon systems and new classified systems that are coming down the road. There's a largely unaddressed aspect of protecting operational data, which is where the deployed forces will be buying fuel from a local broker for delivery to a particular location for a particular purpose. Right Now, as soon as you've got a delivery order that specifies type and amount, location, time for delivery of fuel, you now have operational data that's of immense value to any potential adversary. This is on an open unclassified commercial network in a country that doesn't care about NIST standard 800-171. Nobody's addressed how DOD can do a good job of protecting that. That's been left entirely up to the companies. I think they're doing a good job. They're ahead of the requirements, but you know we don't know where the gaps are and how they're being filled.
0: All right. Uh, there's a lot more that we could chew on and we're out of time, but it's great to talk to you as always, David Berteau. Thanks so much. Thank
2: you. And I hope next time, we say cybersecurity has been fixed. Now let's move on to some other problems.
0: I think the odds of that are very slim, but I'll hope for that also. Thanks.
2: Me too. Thank you, Francis. We're working towards it.
0: You can read more about cyber standards for government and industry in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes at the dot com The Office of Personnel management's undertaking a new data strategy and making fixes to its technology infrastructure. OPM's made progress in a few of its outstanding technology troubles. Michelle Sager is managing director for strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office. Michelle, welcome, thanks for coming on the program. Your big boss, General Dodaro, writing to Kieran Ahuja, the director of OPM, talking about open recommendations that GAO has made over the years. There are two here that regard technology where OPM's made progress, but there are still 15 remaining in five bucket areas. Walk me through each of those bucket areas, starting with improving the federal classification system and help me understand where OPM still has work
3: to do. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. And thank you for highlighting this particular letter. The Office of Personnel Management plays a critically important role and these recommendations, if implemented, really have the opportunity to improve federal government operations. So we're really happy to have the chance to talk more about what the recommendations are and what potential implementation could mean. So the two that were implemented this year, uh, we were glad to see that progress. But then as you noted, there are still kind of five bucket areas where we still need to see progress, and they cover a number of recommendations underneath each of them. So i will just talk through those five areas briefly. The first is improving the federal classification system, and there's one recommendation in that area. Second is making hiring authorities more effective. The third is improving payroll data. And we have four priority recommendations in that area. The fourth is addressing employee misconduct and improving performance management. And there are three priority recommendations in that area. And then fifth and finally, and critically important, is strengthening IT security and management. And there are six open priority recommendations in that particular area.
0: Unless somebody's been under a rock in this community since 2014, Michelle, strengthening IT security and management at OPM is kind of the elephant in the room. Um, The agency has had a long road to recovery from the big breach uh, back then. Where are they now and what are the areas in particular that you would like to see them address regarding IT security and management?
3: So you're right, OPM collects and maintains personal information on literally millions of individuals, and that includes sensitive security clearance data. So protecting this sensitive information continues to be imperative. And if OPM would implement the six priority recommendations, um, those include things such as establishing a process for conducting cybersecurity risk assessments, as well as uh, other areas and it's really critical to ensure that OPM can protect and manage this incredibly sensitive information. For literally millions of individuals there's a the chief human resources agency across the government uh, and their personnel policy management is just a critically important function, and so although they've made some progress and they have plans in place to continue to move forward, we need to continue to see progress, and that is the kind of issue that remains important regardless of how much progress they make. It, it kind of never goes away to some extent.
0: One of the questions that I always have about work that you and your colleagues at GAO do, so for example, establishing a process for conducting cybersecurity risk assessments, is sometimes it's a distinction where something isn't happening. Sometimes it's a distinction where it's not clear the documentation that something is happening. And sometimes uh, it's kind of a combination of both. That idea of conducting cybersecurity risk assessments, it strikes me the word, establishing their phrase, establishing a process for doing so might be the operative phrase there. Am I reading that one right, Michelle?
3: So OPM agreed with this overall recommendation, and they have started to update their risk assessment processes and their cyber risk strategy, but we continue to need to see uh, progress in this area in order for them to fully implement it. They need to keep the project moving forward and then also ensure that uh, as they move forward, they think about about the totality of risk that is represented and how that affects information systems. And if they are able to successfully move forward on this front, then what some of the things that they would be able to do include identifying trends as well as prioritizing their own investments on cybersecurity risk mitigation activities. And that then would allow them to target their resources um, on these systemic risks to the organization as, as well as to the systems.
0: In the bucket regarding improving payroll data, you write the enterprise human resources integration systems (OPM's primary data warehouse) to support the efforts that you referred to uh, referred to earlier about OPM being the human capital center, basically of the federal government. What are the challenges that they're having with the EHRI now, and what would you like to see them address to try to mitigate those those challenges, those risks, Michelle?
3: So this is a really important and long standing area. Uh, the Enterprise Human Resources Integration System, EHRI. That's the acronym for this system. Um, that is how, that's the kind of data warehouse that OPM uses to support federal agencies, human capital management activities. And so it's really critical that they ensure that agencies have the data that they need to make staffing and resource decisions to support their missions. And again, this is across the entire federal government. So this system that I referred to, EHRI, that is their primary data warehouse system and it supports their efforts uh, that could implement these open priority recommendations that cover a lot of ground. And so I will note for any of your listeners that want to dive deeper, the details for each of the underlying reports, the recommendations that are open that we're flagging in this particular letter, and what OPM has reported about where they are and what they plan to do going forward, those are all captured in this letter. And this particular area covers a lot of really detailed areas related to data quality, open data, and making sure that they're capturing the information that would be helpful, particularly as the federal government thinking enterprise-wide as we're looking at the future of work, what that means, where people are working and where agencies are looking to invest their resources as an employer of choice. All of these very data quality checks, open data, all of that contributes to this broader goal thinking about the federal government as uh, an employer of choice.
0: You and your colleagues always do a wonderful job, Michelle, of connecting people like me that care about this stuff to all of your resources through hot links and so on. And we're going to put a link to this letter in today's show notes at the daily scoop And I, this letter notes uh, that strategic human capital management is still on the high risk list that you and your colleagues put out every other year. Um, how many of these recommendations is it your sense feed into? The the that concept staying on the high risk list? Or is this the essence of why strategic human capital management is still on the high
3: risk list, Michelle? This letter, these priority recommendations get, a, get at a lot of those issues. And then as we conduct our work throughout the year, we're also looking at specific agencies and their own human capital challenges. So it's a both and. It's these priority recommendations and some of the challenges OPM is facing. And then it's human capital challenges across the entire federal government that are in many cases common uh, and get at some of these other issues, such as special pay authorities.
0: Michelle Sager of the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for the conversation.
3: Thank you so much.
0: You can find a link to Michelle's work in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow, the best places to work in the federal government and which agencies need some help. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.